This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Ambassador for the Red Flag Group, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 2 of Everything Compliance. This is the podcast which brings together four of the top compliance commentators and experts across the globe to talk about issues related to everything in compliance. This episode is entirely devoted to compliance and anti-bribery enforcement after the election of Donald Trump. Mike Volkoff talks about where FCPA enforcement may be headed and explores how the funding of FCPA cases will not change under the Trump administration. He also talks about the Attorney General designate Jeff Sessions and what that may mean for FCPA compliance enforcement going going forward. Matt Kelly leads a discussion on how the new administration may view the SEC going forward, contrasting that with the Department of Justice. He considers the announced resignation of SEC Chairman Mary Jo White and takes a look at uh, the administration's uh, attacks on Dodd-Frank and focuses on the easing of rules for capital formation. He also concludes with some remarks about where the whistleblower program may be going. Jonathan Armstrong leads a discussion of the view of anti-bribery and anti-corruption enforcement going forward from across the pond sitting in London. He talks about the serious fraud office, but he also considers the new Privacy Shield initiative from the EU and how the Trump administration may or may not impact that. He discusses the Committee of 29 and Article 28 and how those all tie together, which leads to much uncertainty. Jay Rosen takes us through how all of this may be, well, much ado about nothing with regard to the compliance profession. He believes that the compliance profession will continue to thrive as it has become a part of the business process. With his role as Mr. Translations, he explains how companies have been moving compliance into the fabric of their organizations, and by doing so, compliance helps companies to become more efficient run more, and run more profitably. The episode comes in at uh, just about an hour. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to Episode 2 of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are back for another episode of Everything Compliance, where I bring together four of the top compliance uh, practitioners and commentators across the globe. So starting in the East this time, we have uh, Jonathan Armstrong, very far East, I would note, uh, from London, Matt Kelly uh, dialing in from Cambridge, uh, across Texas, where I'm located, out to the fair state of California, where we have Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen in Los Angeles, and down where the sun always shines in lovely San Diego, Mike Volkoff. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Good morning, Tom. Tom. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so uh, since um, our last podcast, we've had an election here. Uh, I guess uh, the uh, coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide was not aware of that. Uh, So if he's listening, please note there was an election. And uh, we're going to talk about it, though, for what it might mean for FCPA, anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance going forward, some issues relating to antitrust, uh, some issues relating to Privacy Shield and EU privacy concerns with the United States, and what it might mean for the compliance practitioner going forward. So everybody uh, here has written extensively on this topic from their own angle. So, Mike, I wanted to start with you sort of from the uh, FCPA compliance angle from the lawyer and perhaps uh, antitrust uh, as well. You wrote in a blog post entitled A New Administration (coughs) and New FCPA Enforcement Regime? Question mark. To those doomsayers who expect or predict FCPA enforcement to dwindle under the new Trump administration, I would urge you to take a deep breath and reflect on the countervailing forces. No matter who leads the Justice Department among the rumored candidates, and we now know that that's uh, former Se- uh, or S- uh, Senator Sessions, 
you can expect aggressive enforcement of criminal laws, even against white-collar criminals. The confluence between the Bush and Obama administrations is unlikely to be broken under the new Trump administration. So uh, where, do you, where do you see FCPA enforcement going forward? And if you could talk about uh, Senator Sessions, because I think you uh, have worked with him. Uh, yep. And I think it's going to be um, I think we're going to see not much of a change, to be honest with you, when it comes down to FCPA enforcement. I think the one headline I would say that's probably going to happen is I think there may be a little bit more of a push toward the idea from the FCPA pilot program to give out or hand out a greater benefit or credit to companies with effective compliance programs. Um, I think that there will be a little bit more of a push on that. Uh, I know Senator Sessions very well, but I think you got to take a step back and remember where did this aggressive white collar enforcement start and, uh, and where did really, and when did the FCPA enforcement ramp up? And those were both relics, uh, and I'd like to use the word relic. I mean, it's amazing. The early 2000s, you know, of the Bush administration and the white collar crime task force that was set up in response to a lot of the accounting failures and the WorldCom and the Enrons and things like that. So when I, there's really not as big a transition, I think, now between a Republican and a Democratic administration in these sort of core areas. Um, uh, antitrust is a little different, and I'll put that to the side for a second, because um, antitrust tends to go up and down with, uh, and priorities tend to change with uh, politics or political administrations. Senator Sessions, I've known for many years, and I worked with him on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he was a former U.S. attorney, uh, or he was not, uh, he was nominated as a U.S. or he was a U.S. attorney and then nominated to become a federal judge. He was uh, rejected by the Senate Judiciary Committee for becoming a federal judge, and then ran for the Senate and got on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And always thought it was a little bit ironic that he was sitting on the committee that had rejected him at one point in time. But he is a really he's all about law enforcement and. The problem we have, it's not a problem, but the, the reality is that the FCPA program is so lucrative and generates so much revenue and is so successful within the Department of Justice that nobody could ever tinker with it in, in a real meaningful way other than to provide, to tinker with sort of the incentives and the discretion about how we uh, credit certain things and credit compliance programs. He's all about compliance. He's all about uh, those types of things. He wants to credit people for doing the right thing and trying to prevent things. And he, uh, Senator Sessions, when he becomes attorney general, will be very supportive of those efforts. So when Andrew Weissman, for example, the you know, in the fraud section, tried to push the idea of getting a declination for, you know, having for meeting the criteria of the pilot program instead of a 50 percent credit. He lost that battle internally. I think with Senator Sessions, he may win that battle. Obviously, he's not going to be there because he's a Democrat, and I think he'll be gone. But nonetheless, the next Andrew Weissman or whoever it is, if they push that, they'll win that battle, uh, is my view. So I think we're going to see more credit for compliance, but I think there's not going to be really any change in terms of the demands for compliance and the demands that people have and the expectations that they have with regard to corporate compliance programs. Now, antitrust, though, I do think is going to be different. Antitrust, uh, you know, Republicans tend to reduce the amount of civil enforcement. Uh, mergers also are more likely to go through. Uh, but I think there's a real twist here, which is, as I recall, uh, Trump on the um, campaign trail you know, criticized the media uh, merger. Uh, he didn't like the AT&T merger, which is a vertical merger. Um, uh, and he said he would reject it. So 
we may get a kind of weird populist type of notion into the antitrust division if it comes from up, up on high, if, if Sessions sort of buys into that. Other than that, you're going to see sort of civil enforcement, I think, slow down, but you'll see criminal just keep going because that's always a moneymaker and they, everybody agrees on that type of issue. But I really, you know, I've, I've read some articles going back to the FCPA, Tom, and everybody uh, that have been just really negative about how things are going to fall apart in this whole area of the anti-corruption battle, the global anti-corruption battle. I think I read Matt Stevenson's uh, article, and I, I just, I felt like he missed the boat. Uh, I think nobody realizes how institutionalized this is. And also that, you know, I've been in the Department of Justice enough times during transitions and not a lot is going to change. There's a, there's a career staff there that does a lot. Uh, they tinker with the priorities. There's going to be more prosecutions of terrorism and more prosecutions of drugs, maybe. Uh, although Senator Sessions had led a lot of the, the uh, sort of, not decriminalization, but sort of the, um, the penalty structure he didn't like with regard to crack cocaine and powder cocaine. So he has, he has some interesting things about him from his experience, but he's a really tough prosecutor though. Um, that's for sure. So he's not going to countenance, uh, fraud. He's not going to countenance Ford and bribery. He's going to, he's going to push those issues, uh, just as much as, uh, uh, President Bush did. And, and remember the rationale about the, the FCPA sort of grew up, I think, as sort of an anti-terrorism uh, initiative in the uh, Bush administration. And I think nobody's going to tinker with that. But I'd be curious to see what everybody thinks, what, what you, you all have been sort of hearing in, about this as well. Well, Mike, let me just Mike, ask you, do you think uh, that uh, you, you mentioned <clears throat> some sort of additional credit for a compliance defense? Do you think the... Um, Chamber of Commerce or others would put forward a bill to add a compliance defense to the FCPA? And if so, how would that be received in Congress? I, I think there's like zero ch chance. I think the chamber will spend money on it thinking that they can do it, but there's no way politicians are going to ever put their name on uh, a bill. They may try to sneak it into something, but they're going to they're not going to put their name on a bill that's going to make it easier or protect companies more uh, when they engage in foreign bribery. Um, there's a little bit of a weird strain, strain of politics going on now where even in the Republicans, there's a brand of Republicans that are sort of anti-corporate right now. And so I don't think this is the traditional sort of Republican establishment coming in and saying, we've got to save big business here um, and or help the companies. Um, there's enough anger, I think, from people about sort of big companies and conglomerates moving jobs and doing things that people aren't going to necessarily embrace that. The old Republican establishment, I think, will try to, you know, do those types of things, which they've tried to do before. I don't ever see a compliance defense ever coming in. It's also one of the stupidest ideas from a practical sense, and I've never gotten any proponent of it to explain to me how it would work in practice. And we've all discussed this issue a lot. On the other hand, the credit issue is something where I can see them saying, hey, if you do these three things, the remediation, the voluntary disclosure, and the cooperation, and, and disgorge your profits, we may, you know, we'll get, I could see them saying we'll decline to prosecute. Okay. And I think that can happen. And the pilot program may grow into a more sort of uh, firm policy, uh, but with a greater carrot out there um, in, in terms of that, because it's working uh, in some respects, you have to give them credit. There's it's doing pretty well in my view. And, uh, they say anecdotally, I mean, we don't have stats yet, but they say they've gotten more voluntary disclosures because of it. So um, I do think that they may, you know, put a larger carrot out there. And I'm not saying that the Democrats wouldn't have done that down the road either. I mean, Andrew Weissman was pushing and Leslie Caldwell were both pushing for the uh, for uh, a 100 percent, you know, declination type of credit. And they lost. 
the battle internally in the Department of Justice. Uh, Mike, what do you think of the future of the Yates memo? And one thought I'd had was I agree with you wholeheartedly that giving them, giving companies more credit opportunities uh, to avoid corporate penalties, I can see that happening. But I was wondering, right. what are some of these things? Well, you know, a lot of people talk about holding individuals more accountable. A lot of Republicans have. So I could actually see that, you know, the Yates memo, whatever you might think of it, I don't see that concept going away, even if a different deputy AG puts out a different memo under a different name. Yeah. It's going to be the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, Matt. I frankly think, uh, I think the Yates memo is sort of just a risk, I think it's going to keep going. I think it's going to be a greater reality. And everybody, nobody will disagree that individuals shouldn't be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And and nobody will touch that issue. Um, now, you're right that it's like every administration. We have the Philip Memorandum, the Holder Memorandum. I mean, we can go back in time. And we may get a, a different type of memorandum. And I think that ultimately... All the ideas that all of us push in terms of compliance ultimately ends up um, and will end up uh, being enshrined uh, somewhere. Uh, Wei Chen, for example, moved the ball a little bit. And some of the ideas that people write about and push and if, and if they gain more acceptance, I think you're going to see those appear because they always struggle for ideas and they don't know where to you know, come up with the ideas. And in some respects, all of us contribute to that. And I think you'll see some more, a little more refinement on the compliance angle because it's, it's good. It's good governance and it's good for companies and people believe in it. So, and it's a, a good way to say to a, a constituent company, look, you know, if you do, if you spend the money, you invest a hundred thousand on your compliance program, we're going to credit it. We're going to, Give you, you know, we can't stop the rogue employee, although I believe that's a misnomer. Um, we can't stop that, but uh, we've given you this benefit. You know, if you do everything right and you suffer from two, two or three people, that would be the big issue. What, you know, what's interesting to me is that the Chamber of Commerce should spend more time, not on the FCPA, but more time on the issue of uh, respondeat superior. And when do we, how do we hold companies liable? Is it fair to take two employees who did something wrong and attribute all of their conduct to the entire com- to the entire company when 98% of the 10,000 employees, you know, 99.9%, you know, abide by the law? And that's a tougher issue to debate to me. Um, uh, and I think you're going to also have some more blowback, I think, in the False Claims Act area, more so than in the FCPA area, because the False Claims Act, people are, you know, prosecutors basically got everything. It was a wish list when the health reform with the Affordable Care Act was passed. And the prosecutors were asked, well, what would you really want for False Claims Act? And they gave them a list and they got it all. So... You know, people are really struggling under False Claims Act compliance and defense situations. Uh, FCPA is just more, it's so successful for the, for the small number of people, and it's now become institutionalized. Uh, I just feel like it's going to, it's going to keep going. They, you know, I think one year, it was, I think it was 2010, uh, uh, or I, I had the stat, it was 2010 or 2011. Half of all the criminal fines collected in the United States came from the FCPA unit, mm-hmm. from yeah, cases that they generated. And that, and when you think about that, that's incredible. We have 94 districts, we have 94 U.S. attorneys, and we have, you know, environmental crimes, we have fraud, we have other types of crimes. But in terms of fines that were handed out, the FCPA in 2010 unit, and it's, you know, 20 lawyers then, along with the AUSAs out in the field, they collected half of the criminal fines to the U.S. Treasury. That's incredible. So, Matt, uh, Mike, can I, Mike, can I ask a question? Um, from from our perspective, um, I, I think, uh, Tom, maybe that you could, in your um, 
one of your recent webinars as well. Um, Walmart, what role does that have to play? So if it's right that the Walmart FCPA settlement is in some holding pattern, given that the award we expect is going to be large, given that it involves Mexico and we know Trump's views on Mexico, we think, and given that it's something that Trump has already spoken out against, saying that FCPA, insofar as it seems to be about to apply to, to Walmart, is a, quote, horrible law. What, what difference does it make if Walmart settled prior to Trump or post-Trump to how he feels about FCPA enforcement? You know, uh, I think it's going to be, this is, he's got so many other fish to fry. I think it'll be, um, I, I think they would make a mistake to hold on to it. I think they should just handle it in the normal way. And, you know, it may be seen as sort of the last move of the Obama Justice Department. Um, but uh, from, you know, from what I can glean, and they're close to announcing it. And, you know, there's always a push in December. Uh, on FCPA enforcement, they try to get out. DOJ does uh, because their fis- their fiscal year is October to October, but nonetheless, they like the calendar year uh, mm. uh, of saying, "Look, we've got these enforcement actions." Remember, like I think it was Alstom and Avon came down in one month in December, I think. And so, I think we may see all uh, Walmart beforehand. I don't think it's going to have that big an impact on him. He's going to be worried about some of the bigger mergers. I could see him getting interested in that or the White House getting interested in that or following that. Uh, I, I don't, and of course, any terrorism cases, you know, ISIS cases that they can claim that they're mm-hmm. responsible for, you know, they're going to, they're going to push that. There's going to be more, uh, I think more resources pushed into, you know, criminal terrorism enforcement, things like that. And, uh, the sort of bread and butter stuff. Uh, and, you know, who knows? He says he's going to, you know, uh, help the inner cities. And his response to how you help them is, you know, law and order. And so I don't know whether that will translate. Uh, you know, the war on drugs is so unpopular and people have moved beyond that. I can't even, I can't see them sort of pushing that agenda again. We've been through that in the 90s. Um, so I, I don't know what they're going to do in respect to that. But I do think that what I think one, I also think the serious fraud office, I think uh, the relationship that they have already is going to continue and, you know, and just and be just as strong in, in, it, uh, in terms of this. So, you know, how it works in China will be interesting because they're sharing a lot of criminal, I mean, they're sharing a lot of anti, uh, sort of corruption investigation information. I don't know how that's going to play out. That will be interesting. I think the international cooperation piece is, is interesting. David Green's already said, you know, if something different happens, then we'll review the relationship. I'm not sure exactly what he, he has in mind, if anything, and what exactly he can do. But I think one feature from me, Matt, I think you might have alluded to it in, in a previous webinar as well, is obviously we've got things like Sapander, the, the new French law coming in. Um, there is a sort of admittedly, the U.S. is still far and away the most active prosecutor, but Canada's done a little bit more, the U.K.'s done a little bit more, Germany, you know, continues to be active. And and I guess we've got to remember that, you know, the cases like Siemens were originated in Germany and then worked up by the U.S. authorities. So even if the U.S. does nothing, then we're still in a better place than we were 15 years ago in terms of prosecutions probably yeah and and nobody's going to pull the plug on the international i mean the u.s is just not going to pull the plug on their international efforts um you know they may put more resources into other types of cooperative arrangements relating to terrorism and intelligence sharing but frankly i don't see them walking away. This is too easy a success story for them to walk away from it. You know, we get a lot of credit for it and we pushed other people uh, through the international organizations to, to, you know, ramp up their compliance. I mean, their enforcement programs. 
And it's too easy a success story for us to suddenly say, well, we don't care anymore. And uh, also the new president-elect has a penchant for wanting to win. And we've been winning big on uh, enforcement over the past few years. So he might as well just hop in and take credit for it. Exactly. Well, that, that's, and you know what, we, uh, that's a great point, Jay, because that's, if he can, if there's something positive out of this, he'll absolutely take credit for it. And if he can piggyback on it, it's even easier. So let me, let me turn to, uh, to Matt, because he's been writing about the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I think there's a, at least a sense or a feeling that things may change fairly dramatically at the SEC. And there's been a lot of um, talk about repealing Dodd-Frank. But Matt, you really articulated it the most succinctly in a blog post entitled Compliance in the Trump Era Part 1, the SEC, when you said repealing Dodd-Frank really means easing rules for capital formation. Could you, so could you tell us about where you think uh, Dodd-Frank repeal might go, where that, what that might mean for the compliance profession, and then uh, whistleblowers or other SEC issues? Sure, yeah. I think, um, you know, it might well mean for most corporate compliance officers, um, it might mean not much. Now, for those in the financial sector, it could mean quite a great deal quite quickly. Um, I think it is pretty clear, given that Paul Atkins, former Republican SEC commissioner in the 2000s, given that he is at the moment running the transition team for the SEC, the CFTC, and a few other regulatory agencies around that. Uh, given him, given the prominence uh, for Jeb Henserling, who is chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, he has been named as a possible Treasury Secretary. I'll put my bet right now. I don't think he will get that job, and I don't think he'd want it. Um, but he's got some very ambitious plans about rewriting the banking regulations for Dodd-Frank that I think Paul Atkins at the SEC would also find uh, very ideologically coherent with what they all would like to have. Um, Let's all put it out there that Donald Trump is a rich Wall Street tycoon developer who always needs access to cash. He is hanging around and surrounding himself with other rich Wall Street tycoons who are always looking for access to cash. We should not be surprised that their top priority right now is how do we ease up regulatory rules so that rich Wall Street guys can have more access to cash. Um, I think we'll see it in things like hedge fund registrations. Uh, we'll see how asset management funds may or may not um, have some governance relaxing. Uh, I think insurance firms will be delighted because I suspect they will want to de- I, I don't know exactly what. I'll say dismantle the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is the group that has the power to designate a systemically important financial institution, including insurance firms who do not like that at all. I think that kind of stuff will go away. Um, closer to what most compliance officers outside the financial sector would worry about. I think that they will try to tackle um, corporate disclosure that's fine. There are an awful lot of corporate disclosure rules out there that perhaps are past their prime or don't serve much purpose. But I think that we'll see a lot of that discussion, at least at a new SEC. We don't know who the new chairman might be. Mary Jo White, the current chairman, just announced she is resigning on January 20th. No surprise there. There are two vacancies for the SEC that Donald Trump also now, I suspect, will get to uh, nominate his replacements there as well. Um, so we're going to see a lot of change there. I could imagine a world where the SEC gets rid of the conflict minerals rule somehow or makes it much less of a burden for companies with some sort of de minimis exception that the law currently doesn't have. It gets back to what Mike had said about the FCPA. We're going to see a similar dynamic that a lot of SEC rules, whether companies like them or not, they've already been here. They've already invested a lot of money in complying with these rules. Conceptually, it is not a bad thing for a company to root out uh, conflict minerals in its supply chain. It makes for good PR, and it's good. It's good thing to do. So even if we got rid of that rule somehow, 
would companies stop doing it if they already have been? I don't know. Um, the last thought that I do have is I'm curious to see what will happen with whistleblower protections. Um, when they talk about dismantling Dodd-Frank, like I said, it's more about banking regulation. I do not think they're going to get rid of the whistleblower protection or the whistleblower rewards program, which would require an act of Congress. Uh, I don't think that's the act that Congress is going to spend its time and attention on. I think that you might see a slow rolling of whistleblower enforcement, particularly around the, um, I'll call it the doctrine change to pretaliation or punishing for whistleblower retaliation when there was no actual underlying offense that the whistleblower was reporting, the whistleblower was wrong. Um, you know, if there is real whistleblower retaliation, like we saw at Wells Fargo, sure, companies are still going to find themselves at the uncomfortable end of an SEC enforcement. But the reinterpretive uh, enforcement that we've seen lately about pretaliation and other sort of uh, zones of protection for whistleblowers I don't know that they're going to go away, but I do think that the SEC might just not make that a priority to enforce. It's going to have plenty of other regulatory ideas it wants to spend its time on. So, Matt, let me uh, uh, follow up on the whistleblower part. Uh, today um, on the FCPA blog, uh, Jordan Thomas had a post where he said that in uh, fiscal year 2016, there were 4,200 uh, whistleblower uh, uh um, filings with the SEC, of which 238 were FCPA cases. In many cases, uh, there's now whistleblower bar who screen cases and prepare them for submission to the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, obviously uh, because lawyers are going to get paid and make money on those. Uh, do you see that dynamic moving towards the Department of Justice enforcement model, which is largely now corporate internal investigations, self-disclosed and turned over to the department and the department essentially assessing the fine. Is that a way for the SEC to keep its FCPA pipeline going? I mean, I, I think probably yes. Um, I think that you know, lawyers, uh, private sector lawyers are always looking for lucrative ways to uh, keep their income going and find new ways to raise complaints that will lead to some sort of a payoff. Um, you know, I, I just, I do think that uh, it, this is not going to be something that a lot of the SEC uh, at the high level, that they're not going to be worried about. They're all going to be salivating at the chance to dismantle Dodd-Frank, and that's where their attention is. A lot of what we're going to talk about here that really does matter to compliance officers, it's going to depend on who is the new division of enforcement director at the SEC or the associate director? Who might be the new whistleblower uh, director if Jane Norberg, uh, who's the current one, assuming that she does leave with the change of the administration? We're not going to know this for months. And then they're going to have to get up to speed. Then they're going to have to come up with their own policy interpretations, which will take more time. I agree with what Mike said, that even in big transitions like we're seeing right now, Federal government has an amazing way to make not much happen, even at these profound periods. Uh, so I think that a lot of compliance will still feel the same six months from now as it does right now. Um, now, I'll, I guess I'll say that at the moment. And actually, I do have one other point. I did see Paul Atkins was in favor of requiring internal reporting to a compliance hotline or a chief compliance officer before somebody could submit a whistleblower tip that might be eligible for a reward. Um, I don't believe that they could now rewrite their rule to require inter internal reporting. I also believe that would expose someone to whistleblower retaliation. So it, like, logically, it doesn't make any sense. It's not like people aren't reporting internally anyways. That is a solution in search of a problem right now. But it is, you know, it's a color Colors the thinking on a key player in the SEC right now. So that, that's one thing about whistleblowers that stood out to me. Well, let me throw out one other uh, question for you. Matt. With uh, the currently there is uh, Commissioner White and uh, two other commissioners, or Chairperson White and two other commissioners for a quorum of three. When she resigns on January 20th, or her resignation is effective, they will then have two commissioners, which is not a quorum. 
And the yep. Securities and Exchange Commission, as I understand it, cannot approve or disapprove settlements without a quorum. How long would it take to get commissioners in place? And in that interim, is enforcement simply going to grind to a halt? Um, well, we don't know how long it might take. Uh, I believe if this comes to pass, and I, I think it will come to pass, the acting chairman presumably would be Michael Piwawar, and he is the uh, resident Republican commissioner. Um, so I presume he would then become acting chairman. But you're right that they wouldn't be able to do a lot of business that commissioners are required to do. A lot of the ongoing business that the staff does, that will still go along at its usual pace, I assume. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what happens if, suppose, somebody wants to appeal a administrative decision to the SEC. Well, they can't. There's not enough commissioners. Suppose uh, they need to adopt some new rule. They can't. There's an insufficient number of commissioners. Um, it's going to be an unusual period. Well, I was thinking more if uh, there are settlements in the pipeline, would companies be incentivized to settle up through the end of the year or perhaps even January 20, because thereafter, for some period of time, there won't be enough commissioners to approve uh, the most routine settlement? I, I kind of wondered about that, and I suppose that's going to depend on the individual company and its predicament. Um I thought we might see some companies starting to stall on FCPA settlements, but um, I saw, you know, J.P. Morgan just settled their Princeling case for $260 million yesterday, and I saw that Teva Pharmaceuticals has set aside $520 million for a potential settlement. So, you know, the, the wheels grind on, but um, I think that's going to be a decision that individual general, general counsels are going to have to make as they plot out what they want to do. But it, I think it's going to be a, a headache for a while. So, Jonathan, if I could turn to you and once again with your unique view for us from across the pond, I'd first like to start out with Privacy Shield and privacy concerns because uh, you wrote about this uh, in a blog post entitled What Does the Election of President Trump Mean for Compliance? And you specifically addressed privacy shield. And in your own inimitable British way, you pointed out perhaps some of the inconsistencies in President-elect Trump's statements about privacy uh, and uh, uh, interference by foreign governments and spy agencies. And Edward Snowden is not a traitor. He shared with information with fellow Americans they have the right to know about whether or not the Russians actually interceded to hack uh, the de- Democratic uh, Party. So from your perspective on Privacy Shield, where do you see the Europeans going with this? Yeah, I, I think, Tom, I mean, the first thing to say, I think, is that Privacy Shield is under attack from a number of places. So uh, I, I had the uh, privilege, I think I mentioned last time, of interviewing Max Schrems uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's clear that his challenges uh, to safe harbour will be turned on Privacy Shield. I think he said it, it's, uh, I think the exact words he used is Privacy Shield is safe harbour with flowers on it. So that challenge will still continue, and, and we're expecting a hearing in February 2017 in Dublin, which will then refer the, um, that case likely to the European court. We've also got these two new cases that have been started, one by an Irish group and one by a French group, uh, to challenge uh, Privacy Shield. And we have 500 questionnaires have now been sent to uh, companies that operate in Germany, asking them whether they have signed up to Privacy Shield. And we expect that to be the first uh, salvo, perhaps, in some other uh, German-based enforcement action. So there are a number of threats to Privacy Shield as it stands. In addition, there's this annual review, which will be uh, which will be getting ready for in the spring of next year. And the timing is obviously not great for Privacy Shield because Trump comes in in 
in in uh, January 20th, uh, which is about the same time, I think, as the Article 29 Working Party, this group of privacy regulators, and the European Parliament have said that they'll be looking at Privacy Shield because it's a one-year deal, and, and obviously it has to get renewed if it's to survive in the late uh, springtime. Uh, that, that's likely to be the hearings, I think. Um, and and the real uh, a potential trap, I think, for Privacy Shield that's new with Trump is that effectively there's, and, and you probably shouldn't categorize it as such, but almost like a super memo that Obama wrote, uh, I think it's technically called Presidential Policy Directive 28. And this is the the executive direction uh, that gives the foundation for Privacy Shield being different than Safe Harbor. So much of the rest of Privacy Shield is the same as the Safe Harbor deal that the European Court struck down uh, in um, in October 2015. But the difference is this uh, uh, presidential uh, policy directive, which effectively says that EU nationals are to be treated as having the same rights as US nationals when it comes to objecting to mass surveillance. So, um, I, uh, uh, you're better placed, I think everyone on the call is better placed to comment than me on how the situation works. I don't know whether when Trump walks into the Oval Office, there's a book of policy directives and he sort of gets out his red pen and strikes through some and puts a tick against the box for others. But it's clear, obviously, that, as you say, with my British uh, uh, sense of understatement. Uh, <laughs> Trump's views have been hard to ascertain. So, for example, on the 26th of October 2013, mm-hmm. he seemed to be criticizing um, uh, the NSA when he said, can you imagine the anger and disgust when the heads of other countries found out that their cell phones were being tapped by the NSA, full stop, Obama mess. But three days earlier, he seemed to have been saying that the NSA's power should have been extended. Why doesn't President Obama call upon the NSA to fix the badly broken website? Then they could spy on all of the many cheaters and arrest them. Close inverted commas. So, um, uh, and as you say, uh, uh, earlier that year, he'd also said that uh, Snowden was not a traitor and that he'd shared information with fellow Americans. So I think it's a very challenging situation. Um, We have had a visit from the chair of the FTC, uh, Edith Ramirez, who came over to Brussels on a scheduled visit, scheduled prior to the election. uh, uh, And on the 9th of November, she spoke at a conference and said that she felt that the Trump administration Uh, was unlikely to make dramatic changes on privacy. Uh, She said she thinks that there's enough of a uh, steam behind uh, privacy generally that the Trump administration wouldn't want to reverse anything. But I guess um, Trump will in no way feel bound by the views of, um, of the FTC and certainly not his selections at the FTC. So I personally think that Privacy Shield is very much under threat. I think that there are many in Europe who would look for an excuse to say that the Trump administration is not as committed to privacy as uh, Obama was and use that as as an excuse to attack Privacy Shield. And, of course, the other thing that is possible Given the commission's wariness about Trump and, you know, having already, uh, you know, summoned this special meeting of ministers, which the UK refused to attend, there is always the possibility of some unilateral action from the commission, particularly if this super memo was torn up. I think the commission would be forced to suspend Privacy Shield. 
So if you're doing an investigation at the moment or if you are do, doing any sort of data transfer, you really do need to have a plan be in place and, uh, and that uh, won't be an easy process. But you do need some sort of security because I think it's so volatile that we could see a suspension in about 24 hours if Trump was to do something uh, uh, strange. So unless you think that Trump's a man who's entirely consistent in his views, <laughs> uh, then uh, get a plan B. Jonathan, let me uh, drill down a little bit into the one-year time period you talked about, because I think that uh, was specifically put in place with the uncertainty around the American election last summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I recall, that one-year grace period allowed a, a, a one-year period before the individual commissioners who constitute the group of 29 would uh, either take any action or review whether or not the United States had fulfilled their obligations uh, that they agreed to under uh, Directive 28 in Privacy Shield. Uh, my sense is, or my concern, I should say, is that with the election of Trump and, and the uncertainty that may exist even for six months around this specific issue, if we see kind of statements or movements all over the place by the Trump administration, this group of 29 commissioners uh, may act on their own to pull out of Privacy Shield. Really, any any thoughts on that? Because I know particularly the French think- commissioner uh, was, was had some pretty strong words. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a fair read. Uh, obviously, the French uh, commissioner, uh, she, uh, she is chair of Article 29 at the moment as well. So she's very influential. I think there was an unfortunate episode where some people behind Privacy Shield sort of implied that uh, Isabel Fanon Peretin uh, had bought into this process when I think she said, she clearly hadn't. She'd been talked to, but had not agreed. And, and, and so I don't think Trump doing nothing is an option at all. I think, I think the Trump administration are going to have to do something as a positive commitment to Privacy Shield. I think it almost fails by default. So they are going to have to pick this up and run with it pretty quickly, I think. I'd suggest if, if there isn't some positive commitment by, I guess, about the end of March, then I'd probably be, if I were a betting man, betting against Privacy Shield rather than against it. And, and given everything else that's going on, can a Trump administration get up to speed and do something positive by, by the end of March? I, I, I don't know, but I, I would suggest that's the time frame. I think I think the default of the Article 29 Commission will be to reject Privacy Shield or at least to kick off some form of local investigations, you know, like Germany are clearly already doing. And the default of the European Parliament, I think, would be to object or at least some in the European Parliament, um, you know, uh, Jan Albrecht, Sophie and Bell, people like that, who who have already uh, voice their unhappiness when when Privacy Shield was was launched in February. Um, and bear in mind also, of course, that the European Commission missed the end of January deadline, albeit not from much, by much last year. So I think Article 29 aren't going to be that tolerant of another missed deadline and another, you know, petition for some sort of extension or delay. So that's why I think. Trump administration is going to have to be quick out of the blocks. Well, that may uh, prove challenging given the uh, organizational skills that they've shown so far. So, uh, Matt or Jay, anything uh, for Jonathan? Uh, Jonathan, this is Jay. So, um, one of the things that the president-elect has kind of made a big uh, issue of focus is that he doesn't want U.S. companies uh, moving abroad. So do you have any idea how um, the Privacy Shield will affect uh, M&A if we don't take any action on that before the deadline? Yeah, I, I think that's interesting as well. I mean, I think we often, you know, don't, don't focus on things like M&A when we're looking at data transfer. 
but but I think it has quite an impact there. I think the other um, uh, you know potential impact on U.S. business are all of those businesses around where you live, Jay, that that survive on running things like global HR systems for people. Um, and and how did they survive in a world where Privacy Shield doesn't exist? You know, we have these groups uh, setting up in places like Germany to say, well, if you currently use global HR system A, B, or C, you can pick German system D, where A, it complies with data privacy rules, and B, the money that is generated by the software stays in Germany or stays in Europe rather than it is ferried across the Atlantic. And, and obviously, most of these global HR systems, travel management systems, uh, whatever they might be, are, are US-owned. So I think there is a trade aspect to it as well, both in terms of you know, acquisition strategy, obviously, with things like the low pound, US corporations are acquiring businesses in Europe are talking about it. So, so Privacy Shield is relevant to all of that stuff as well, I think. And obviously, just as there's an anti-outsourcing movement in the US that's helped drive um, Trump's popularity, don't forget that we're seeing the same in Europe. You know, France has got elections coming up. Uh, we have uh, Le Pen campaigning on a similar ticket to Trump, where she's wanting to keep jobs in France. So this sort of anti, the, the, the perverse thing is, the anti-globalization movement is becoming more global. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so, Jay, if I could turn to you from uh, your perspective of the compliance practitioner and the compliance uh, profession, you had a post entitled FCPA, Should I Stay or Should I Go Now, where you said, here's my disconnect. If President-elect Trump campaigned on a platform of removing corruption from D.C. and specifically targeting a former U.S. president and his secretary of state wife, then he cannot bring an end to such vital regulations as the FCPA, Sarbanes-Oxley, and Dodd-Frank. Many in the compliance profession have expressed, if not fear, certainly concern about where the profession might be going as opposed to either the, the law, the FCPA, or perhaps regulations under Dodd-Frank or other SEC-garnered uh, initiatives. Where do you see things going for the compliance profession from your perspective? Uh, great question, Tom. Um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing now is I haven't seen anybody uh, say, I'm not going to translate my code of conduct because of the new election. So, um, right now, I think it's business as usual. And in my blog last week, I, I tried to make the case that, um, you know, there are, there are certain points that happened uh, in the, uh, I guess, the life cycle of FCPA and why we are here now. And I think while there's too much uncertainty because of the president-elect's mercurial nature and for him making decisions on a dime. I think overwhelmingly what we've discussed this morning from the panelists' points of view is there is enough good that is being done by the FCPA. There has been a number of great systems that have been put into place by companies. Um, these are helping companies be more efficient helping companies be more profitable. Um, it's given rise to certain things like the world's most ethical companies. And if you see those companies who traditionally uh, receive that honor, they're companies that are not only financially sound, but they also keep out of trouble. So um, I, I would weigh more on the side of uh, Mike Volkov and be 
cautiously optimistic for FCPA. And um, I think that, you know, with the traditional Republican bent that all regulation is bad, uh, we really can't take that kind of Neanderthal look at these things that, uh, to Matt's point, there may be more changes within the realm of uh, the SEC and Dodd-Frank. But, you know, I, I still think that most of the regulation that we have has come along a very long timeline. So going back into the 80s when we had $600 hammers and that was the genesis of the FCPA. And then we look into the Enron scandals and the scandals in the 90s. And now we look about things that, you know, are in the news today. And uh, I know you and I are going to do our This Week in FCPA in a bit and, and talk about the J.P. Morgan Stanley settlement. All of those things are anti-competitive behaviors and they're all ethical lapses. So if we're going to have an administration that talks to somebody who believes in fixing broken windows, I think FCPA is still one of the best remedies that we have. And right now, from um, a customer perspective, people are still proceeding along business as usual. And these, again, are the people who have seen benefits in the past and realize that if they can bake in compliance, if they can do compliance, if they can flow it down to the level of the individual business units, that there are far greater benefits to them than detriments. So it's interesting, Jay. I really like the way you opened that with no one has called and said, I don't need my code of conduct translated. I guess I get mm -hmm. the sense from that comment that the work you do as Mr. Translations and the greater compliance community is seeing itself as not a legal response or a legal issue, but a business process. And do we need our code of conduct translated? Well, of course we do, because we have employees outside the United States who need to understand our values. Is, is that what I'm sensing from you? Yeah, I, I think that's a great you know way to put it. And, um, you know, there, there are going to be those folks in, in the Chamber of Commerce who are going to want to try to water down and maybe come up with a compliance defense or, you know, um, say that facilitation payments are OK. But um, I, I think, you know, one one of the uh, people out there who commented this week was our good friend Roy Snell. And basically, um, what, what was it that um, Mark Twain said that the, uh, the the rumor of my death has been greatly exaggerated? And I'm not even sure if he said that, but it's been attributed to him. And Roy basically said, for the last 20 years, people have been talking about the downfall of the compliance profession, and it's never going to last. And I think it is very well rooted in corporate America. I think we see it when we get together with our colleagues. We see it with the scholarship, with the number of people who write and blog on this. So I do not think the compliance officer is going away, um, despite the uh, sky is falling postings that we read every day from Jack Kelly. And I think from his perspective, he's talking more about uh, financial compliance people who are working under uh, Dodd-Frank and Sox rules. But I think for the larger compliance confession, uh, uh, profession, not confession, that it is here to say it will grow. The roots are deep and they're getting deeper and deeper every day as they show benefits. Jonathan, if I could tie that uh, to something that you, you just touched on, which is, uh, the Serious Fraud Office, but more importantly, the UK Bribery Act, because many of, in fact, almost every one of the multinationals that uh, I represent and certainly most of the other folks uh, on our distinguished panel would work with or represent have companies or business that subjects them to the UK Bribery Act. And mm -hmm. even with um, Brexit going on, uh, we've heard nothing about uh the UK Bribery Act being watered down or that there should be less enforcement. It, so it would seem to me that any American company with a UK subsidiary or doing business with a UK company would want to have their compliance program in place for that reason alone. 
Yeah, I think that's right, and I don't sense any any um, any watering down of enforcement. I mean, obviously, we might end up. I think we talked about this before with a, a slightly different enforcement regime that the um, you know, the SFO may be rolled up into something else under Theresa May, but they don't seem short of funding. As as we've said, they've had blockbuster funding uh, recently, and they seem to still have. A pretty active caseload, and we are expecting some fairly large cases of our own here soon as well. And and obviously, DPAs are um, increasing in importance over here as well. So I think you're right. The for any business, um, the uh, bribery isn't just the FCPA. You know, we're seeing more enforcement, as I said, admittedly led by the US, but uh, other jurisdictions are, are stepping up to the plate as well. So, yeah, it isn't a sort of, you know, one regulator game anymore. And I think that there is definitely a much more of a willingness for the UK, for Canada, for Germany, for the Netherlands maybe to prosecute more of these cases. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we're near uh, the top of the hour and uh, promised our listeners that we would hold these to an hour. But I wanted to thank everyone. This has been a great discussion Uh, for anybody who is on the ledge about whether or not they're going to have a profession uh, in 2017 going forward. I hope uh, you have garnered from this podcast that, yes, compliance will be here. Yes, the FCPA will be here. And even the beloved Securities and Exchange Commission will be here. So with that, gentlemen, I would wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. I have two calls to action for you. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would ask that you rate this podcast. It would definitely uh, help us in our rankings. The second thing is we're always uh, happy to have questions that we'll uh, toss out to the uh, panelists. So if you have any questions you'd like explored, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.